Tiki Hut Media. Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Grace, peace, cheers. Hi everybody, Jerry here, ready for another episode of Soul Ramblings Podcast. So glad you could join us today. Coming up on today's episode, we'll talk about a story about two pair of boots. We'll also hear Jelly Roll talking to Congress, and we'll talk about the book Insurgents by Frank Viola. As we are in the second week of the Lenten season, we talk about promises. And I heard a story from uh, when I was a minister in Florida. I had a woman who was the daughter of an elderly woman in that church. And she was in, the, the mother was in an assisted living facility. And she told me that she spent a lot of time with her mother there. And when she would leave to come to church or go to the grocery store or whatever she needed to do, her mother would grab her hand and say to her, promise you'll come back. Do you promise you'll come back? And her daughter later told me that why her mother did that. She was so insistent on that promise and hearing that promise. You see, her husband had been killed in World War II. His body was found far from his unit. Somehow he'd gotten separated from his fellow soldiers. And his wife, who was now elderly, was always haunted by the thought that her husband had died alone, isolated. And she was now frightened of the very same thing. So she was very insistent. Promise me you'll come back. As the years went on, dementia had robbed this woman of her memories. And the day before she died, her daughter told me she leaned over to give her mother a kiss. And the look of recognition came across her face all of a sudden. And she declared, you came back just like you promised. You did come back. Such joy. Joy because a promise was made and a promise was kept. God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. And that can be a great source of joy for us. In the book of Genesis, we see Abram and Sarai, and they had heard a powerful promise from God. As a matter of fact, several promises of God. Their amazing story begins in Genesis 12. Abram is 75 years old when God tells him to pack up his wife, family, and possessions and follow God wherever he leads. As a part of that invitation to leave the familiar and undertake this adventure, God makes this astounding promise to Abram and Sarai. Now, they've never had any children, yet God promises that they will become parents of a nation. What a promise that is. This couple, barren up until this point, now God declares to them, your descendants will be numerous. Now, we would assume that such a promise would bring them joy. Yet, as we continue reading through the book of Genesis, God keeps repeating this promise to Abram and Sarai. And you begin to wonder, are Abram and Sarai listening? Or in some way, are they like the woman in the assisted living, grabbing onto God's hand and insisting, do you really promise? Do you really, really promise? In chapter 13 of Genesis, God repeats his promise. I'll make you descendants, I'll make your descendants rather, so numerous that they can't be counted. Chapter 15, God's promise becomes a covenant. Abram wonders if maybe one of his servants will inherit everything. 
So God repeats the promise again. Your descendants will be numerous like the stars in the sky. God keeps promising. You will have children. I will make this happen. But in chapter 16, Abram and Sarah appear to be dissatisfied with God's timing. You can almost picture them looking up to heaven and saying, you know, we're not getting any younger here, God. True. God had repeated his promise over and over again, but they decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarai encourages Abram to be intimate with his maidservant, Hagar. That's certainly one way to have a child, I guess. What could go wrong with that plan? So God has to intervene, and once again, God repeats his promise to Abram and Sarai. You will have numerous descendants. God once again makes a covenant promise to Abram and Sarai. You will have a child. Your descendants will be numerous. I promise. I really promise. The living God makes transformative promises to Abram and Sarai in the passages of the book of Genesis. God says, I am God Almighty. I will make a covenant with you. This is my covenant. I have made you, and I shall make you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. You will be fruitful, and Sarai will bear a son. Such beautiful, transformative promises. All the more remarkable because God has been making these promises, repeating these promises over and over again for several chapters in the book of Genesis. But in chapter 17, Abram and Sarai are so transformed by their encounter with this promise-making, promise-keeping God that they apparently change to the core of their being because their names are changed at this point. So often in the Bible, when someone has a life-changing encounter with the living God, their names get changed. In the biblical world, your name represents your identity and your destiny. So if you have an encounter with God, an encounter that changes who you are and what your destiny is, then your name changes too. Jacob encounters God, his name becomes Israel. Saul encounters the risen Christ, and his name becomes Paul. Simon becomes Peter. The name Abram means exalted father, but the name Abraham, which is what his name changed to, means father of a multitude. His name tells his destiny. The name Sarai means princess. The name Sarah is a subtle shift in that meaning, indicating that she is the princess of many. God has promised, God is acting through this couple to create a people who will become the blessing through which God saves the world. And in chapter 17, God repeats that promise in a way that transforms Abraham and Sarah. As we read through chapters 12 through 17 of the book of Genesis, we get struck by the fact that God keeps repeating his covenant promise to Abraham and Sarah. Yet Abraham and Sarah behave as if they're they're not always listening to God when he promises. Or they apparently think it's up to them to help God figure out how to fulfill his promise. God promises, Abraham and Sarah, you will have a child. Sarah suggests, let's have Hagar give birth and count Ishmael as our heir. God keeps promising, but Abraham and Sarah, do they doubt? Don't they trust God? If God is speaking so clearly, why does God have to keep repeating himself? Or is it possible, on many occasions... Abraham and Sarah are not listening to the promise-making God. Sure, they hear his words, sometimes, but it's also possible that at other times they're listening not to God, 
but to the voice of their own fears. They seem almost haunted by a fear that God cannot or will not fulfill this amazing promise he's made. Sure, God says it, but his timing is just too slow. Sure, God promises, but maybe we'll have to work out the details. When they listen to the authentic voice of God, they hear promises that transform Abraham and Sarah to their core. When they listen to their own fears and doubts, they seem to panic, concluding that God of the universe cannot do what he promises. But in the next chapter of Genesis, the promise-making God sends three messengers to Abraham and Sarah with the announcement that the birth of the long-promised son is imminent. Promise made, promise kept. A God who can be trusted. In the fullness of time, God sent his only son, fulfilling promises God made through the prophets. And throughout his preaching ministry, Jesus makes remarkable promises. Promises so transformative that they will change us to our core. And maybe the question that Abraham and Sarah faced is the question we all face as well. Will we listen to Jesus as he makes these promises, trusting that he will do what he promised he will do? Or are we going to listen to our fears and our worries? Listen to a few things Jesus said. Come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. A promise made, a promise kept. Jesus said, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. Promise made, promise kept. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. A promise made, a promise kept. Jesus said, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Again, a promise made, a promise kept. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Promise made, promise kept. Jesus said, the Son of Man will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise. Again, a promise made, a promise kept. Jesus said, behold, I am with you always. A promise made, a promise kept. The promises made by the Son of God will change us to the core if we listen to them. He said it, he'll do it. He promises. We are in an election year, and the economy is definitely the top of conversation uh, and many debates about who to vote for. And any time those conversations about wealth and poverty and the economy come up, people inevitably start talking about boots for some reason. The standard phrase that comes up is, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or that usually is shorthand for Work harder and don't ask for or expect any help. No help's coming. you got to depend on yourself. The idea that people who build wealth do so because they individually work harder than poor people is baked into the American conscience and wrapped up in the ideal of the American dream. A different take on boots and building wealth, however, paints, I think, a more accurate picture of what it takes to get out of poverty the late author Terry Pratchett, in his book Men at Arms from 1993, had a passage in it called Sam Vimes' Boots Theory of Socioeconomic Unfairness. I've got a link in the show notes to more on that, and you can read that quote. But what he's basically saying is that people who have the money to spend a little more up front often end up spending less in the long run. In other words, a 50 
dollar pair of boots that will last five years essentially cost you ten dollars a year but if you can only afford ten dollars up front for a pair of boots that last six months that's what you buy and you end up paying twice as much over a five-year period there are a lot of areas in which this principle applies especially if you're poor buying in bulk saves you money over the long run but you have to be able to afford to pay the price of bulk up front A reliable car that doesn't require regular repairs will cost more than a beater, but if the beater is all you can afford, that's what you're stuck with. You'll likely spend the same or more over time than if you bought a newer, higher quality car, but without the capital or the credit rating, you don't have much choice. People who can afford larger down payments pay lower interest rates, saving them money both immediately and in the long run. People who can't afford to buy more can spend more with credit cards, pay off the balances, build up good credit, and then qualify for lower interest rate loans. There are a lot of good financial decisions and strategies that you can use if you have the ability to build up some cash. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you simply can't. Climbing the financial ladder requires getting to the bottom rung first. Those who started off anywhere on the ladder can make all kinds of announcements about how to climb it, and it's good sound advice that really does work if you're already on the ladder. But for people living in poverty, the bottom rung is just simply out of reach, and the walls you have to climb to get to it are even more slippery. It's expensive to be poor. When people talk about how hard it is to climb out of poverty, This is a big part of what they mean. Ladder climbing advice is useless if you can't get to the damn ladder. And yet, far too many people bitch about offering people assistance that might help them reach the ladder so they can start taking advantage of all that great financial advice. Why? Because they were born somewhere on the ladder, probably, even if it was the bottom rung. And they are not aware that there are people for whom the ladder is simply out of reach. Or perhaps they're unaware of how expensive it is to be poor and how the cost of poverty keeps people stuck in the pit. Hopefully this theory will help more people understand and sympathize with the reality of being poor. Money makes money, but having money also saves you money. The more money you have, the more wealth you're able to build on, and not only because you have the extra money to save, but also because you buy higher quality things that, that last, therefore spending less in the long run. Now, there's also the reality that the uber wealthy will pay $5,000 for a pair of shoes they'll only wear a few times, but that's a whole other kind of boot story. But I believe Terry Pratchett gives us a very simple explanation and helps us all understand We'll be right back after this short break. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Spotify playlist, the Soul Rambling Spotify playlist. I invite you to go over there and listen to that and enjoy the great music we have over there. 
One of the artists that are featured on the playlist is Jelly Roll. And Jelly Roll is actually the subject of something we haven't done in a long time. And that's a good news story. Good news, everyone. Jelly Roll spoke in front of Congress in January, and he was urging lawmakers to pass anti-fentanyl legislation, and he shared his personal history with substance abuse in an effort to help save lives. We've got Jelly Roll addressing Congress. This is about five minutes long, and it's from C-SPAN. Take a listen to this and be convicted by the testimony of Jelly Roll. Uh, forgive me, I'm a little nervous. I'm used to having a rock and roll band behind me when I have a microphone in front of me. Um, during the time that I've been given to share my testimony here, I think it's important to note before I start that in these five minutes I'll be speaking that somebody in the United States will die of a drug overdose, and it is almost a 72% chance that during those five minutes it will be fentanyl-related. Having started that way, Chairman Brown, Ranking Member Scott, and esteemed committee members, thank you for having me. I know this is a bit of a curveball, but I like a little baseball myself. My name is Jason D. Ford, but to most I am known as Jelly Roll. I, it is important to establish earlier that I am a musician and that I have no political alliance. I am neither Democrat nor Republican. In fact, because of my past, my right to vote has been restricted. Thus far, I have never paid attention to a political race in my life. Ironically, I think that makes me the perfect person to speak about this because fentanyl transcends partisanship and ideology, gentlemen and women. This is a totally different problem. And uh, I was speaking outside to the media, and I, I gave them a statistic that said 190 people a day overdose and die every single day in the United States of America. That is about a 737 plane. That's what about a 737 aircraft can carry. Could you imagine the national media attention it would get if they were reporting that a plane was crashing every single day and killing 190 people? But because it's 190 drug addicts, we don't feel that way because America has been known to bully and shame drug addicts instead of dealing and trying to understand what the actual root of the problem is with that. But the sad news is that that narrative is changing, too, because the statistics say that in all likelihood, almost every person in this room has lost a friend, family member, or colleague to the disease known as addiction. I've attended more funerals than I care to share with y'all. This committee, I could sit here and cry for days about the caskets I've carried of people I loved dearly, deeply, in my soul, good people. Not just drug addicts, uncles, friends, cousins, normal people. Some people that just got in a car wreck and started taking a pain pill to manage it. One thing led to the other. And how fast it spirals out of control, I don't think people truly, truly understand. So many people. Equally, I think it's important for me to tell you all that I'm not here to defend the use of illegal drugs. And I also understand the paradox of my history as a drug dealer standing in front of this committee. But equally, I think that's what makes me perfect to talk about this. I was a part of the problem. I am here now standing as a man that wants to be a part of the solution. I brought my community down. 
I hurt people. I was the uneducated man in the kitchen playing chemists with drugs I knew absolutely nothing about, just like these drug dealers are doing right now when they're mixing every drug on the market with fentanyl, and they're killing the people we love. I'll be honest with y'all. My desire is to only get older and only do better and be better. I believed when I sold drugs genuinely that selling drugs was a victimless crime. I truly believe that, y'all. My father always told me, what doesn't get you in the wash will get you in the rinse. Now I have a 15-year-old daughter whose mother is a drug addict. Every day I get to look in the eyes of a victim in my household of the effects of drugs. Every single day. And every single day I have to wonder, if me and my wife, if today will be the day that I have to tell my daughter that her mother became a part of the national statistic. History repeats itself, gentlemen. Even in the 1990s, crack cocaine had long made its way into my middle lower class neighborhood. And at that moment, even as a teenager, you could have never convinced me in that moment that there would be a far bigger problem on the horizon in the form of a pharmaceutical drug. And then I watched opioids and Oxycontin burst onto the scene. I'm here to tell y'all that fentanyl is going to make the Sackler family look like saints. And I want to let y'all sit with that for a second. It is time for us to be proactive and not reactive. We were reactive with crack. We were reactive with opioids. And y'all are taking the first step at somebody in Senate finally being proactive. I truly believe in my heart that this bill, that this bill will stop the supply and can help stop the supply of fentanyl. But in part of being proactive, gentlemen and, and women I, and, and ladies, I have to be frank and tell y'all that if we don't talk to the other side of Capitol Hill and stop the demand, we are going to spin our tires in the mud. Y'all are taking the first step, but I encourage you to take it outside of this room and you take it to your colleagues and your constituents and you give them the most that you can. I know I've got a few seconds here and Senator Brown said I may or may not go over. Um, all I want to say is that I not only encourage y'all to do this, I encourage y'all to take it a step further. At every concert I perform, I witness the heartbreaking impact of fentanyl. I see fans grappling with this tragedy in the form of music that they seek solace in music and hope that their experiences won't befall others. They crave reassurance. These are the people I'm here to speak for, y'all. These people crave reassurance that their elected officials actually care more about human life than they do about ideology and partisanship. I stand here as a regular member of society. I am a stupid songwriter, y'all, but I have firsthand witnessed this in a way most people have not. I encourage y'all to not only pass this bill, but I encourage you to bring it up where it matters, at the kitchen table. Jelly Roll, who is now sober, is an outspoken advocate for drug rehab centers and supports them by performing charity shows in local jails and rehab facilities while on tour. And for the first time in a long time, that's our Soul Ramblings good news story for this week. And hearing and seeing that story no matter what's going on, and we can use, just like he did, what he's been through to be his testimony and do and use it for good and realize with absolute clarity that God is still God, Jesus is still Lord, and the Holy Spirit is still at work. We see things that have been there all the time, but we've not seen them, like glory sightings of what God is doing through ordinary people, stories of transformation that have Jesus written all over them and God touching all the trouble to redeem it. It's so powerful. The only thing that we can say is God's got this. So well done, Jelly Roll.
just recently finished up Frank Viola's book, Insurgent, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. And I have to say, it encourages us to open ourselves up to the power of the Holy Spirit so that the kingdom can break into our world now. He writes about an insurgent, a movement of people so deeply connected to and committed to Christ that they have decisively broken out of the world system and now live as citizens of God's kingdom. This book is revolutionary. It's going to step on your toes. It did mine. There were some things where I, as I read it, I said, wait a minute. No, no, no. That's, that's not right. I don't agree with that. It even angered me a little bit. But he deeply engages scripture and the writings of others who have written about the kingdom of God. This is not a book that merely describes the kingdom of God. He examines the work of the best scholars and the Bible to help us see the beauty and power of God's kingdom so that we're changed and the world is changed. This book is a call to radical discipleship. It is inspiring and empowering, especially to us believers, to become agents of God who join the insurgents which manifest God's kingdom in the world. He provides examples of believers who have joined the insurgents and become radicalized for the kingdom of God. He also provides some practical exercises so that when we read this, we can begin to implement what we've read. He says this in the book, this is a direct quote, reading a book without taking action is like flying a plane without landing. He gives some great suggestions so that we can take action to join the insurgents, experience a deeper connection to Jesus Christ and help God's kingdom break into our world. It is an invitation to the deeper Christian life and an exposition of God's eternal purpose that also offers followers of Jesus some transformative exercises to help us become part of God's revolution. Quite simply, the message he shares is one we need to hear. Link in the show notes to a copy of the book if you would like to check it out. Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom of God by Frank Viola. Connect and engage with us on social media on Facebook and Instagram or on Substack. Be sure to go over to Substack. You also get on Substack our weekly Sunday Ramblings devotional. And we have links to all of those in the show notes of this episode. You can always drop us an email soulramblingspodcast at gmail.com. As we wrap up today's episode from Philippians 4, 8, the Apostle Paul says, From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. I want to thank you for the gift and privilege of your time, and thank you for being here. We'll see you next week on Soul Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jerry Wicker. Grace, peace, cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Soul Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production. Yeah.